This talk is brought to you by the Thomistic Institute. For more talks like this, visit us at ThomisticInstitute.org. I've been thinking for a long time about the problem of how to think about um, economic justice in light of the fact that um, in light of the fact that things in economic life move constantly. Right? So, so things are not static. And so sort of the standard distributional way of thinking about justice in the tradition is, um, is problematic um, because of the element of time. So that's, that's where these, these remarks came from. Um, so I'm going to, um, a couple of preamble remarks. Um, I'm going to focus on, um, in particular on economic justice, as people think about economic justice, and sort of not on, you know, justice in general, which is a very big topic. I also want to say that, um, you know, sort of treatises on justice are not in short supply, and most of them are not short. <laughs> um, so uh, it seems almost foolish to sort of wade, wade into these topics. Um, I want to say in advance um, that I'm also interested in thinking about conditions of justice in sort of the social order or the economic order. Um, it is certainly a task of the just man to will the just society. But I want to say um, as well that um, there, are, there are going to be larger norms that we have to think about in terms of justice. I don't think that's really a difficult um, thing to, to accomplish. But I'll say, for instance, I take it for granted that an ardent, an ardent committed socialist, a man who earnestly wills that private property would be abolished, would would fall short of excellence and justice, whatever the quality of his personal dealings with others. Um, the notion of economic justice frustrates on all sides. Progressives tend now to favor structural notions of economic justice in which principles of fairness and equality find institutional expressions in public policy and where distributional outcomes at any cross section of time tend to be marshaled to reveal, as it were, that initial conditions are not fair or equal. At the same time, these thinkers tend to struggle to offer a definition which can bound public policies in meaningful senses and thus seem to fall prey to accusations of socialist justice. Conservatives, however, now in various stages, maybe we could say of realignment, we want to think about that, until recently have engaged the notion of economic justice with less vigor than progressives, you could say, preferring instead, um, we might say Hayekian or classical liberal rules-based conceptions of justice or economic justice, um, usually or without maybe admitting it, based on a kind of Nozickian conception in which economic justice is just sort of the aggregate sum of justly titled individual transactions. Ironically, and maybe uh, tragically, there's not much I would say, in the toolkit of the contemporary economist that is of any real use to considerations about justice, unless one wants to divide numerators by denominators, and more on this later. Economists have now generally receded, I would say, from the serious task of reflection on the nature of the free society and the conditions under which men may be said to thrive, the latter of which I take to be the aim of economic justice. So what I'm going to do now is proceed in a fairly programmatic way and this is why you have a handout. If you didn't get a handout, there's a few more left. Um, and maybe it looks like maybe 
does everybody have one? Yeah. Because um, I'm going to quote a little bit um, and proceed in a programmatic way. So you will have patience with me, I expect, if I begin with the following literary account um, of a battle told from the perspective of a private. And this is from one of uh, Shelby Foote's novels. And so this is the first quote. And I will read most of it, but not all of it, um, in the interest of time. <clears throat> he writes, officers were running around, waving their swords and hollering, form. They yelled at us, form for attack, but nobody paid them much mind. They were too busy rummaging the tents. So they begun to lay about with the flats of their swords, driving us away from the plunder. It didn't take long. When we formed again in line, reloading our guns, squads, and companies mixed every which way, they led us through the row of tents at a run. All around me, men are tripping on the ropes and cussing and barking their shins on the stakes. Then we got through and I saw why the officers had been yelling for, so, for us to form. There was a gang of federal soldiers standing shoulder to shoulder in the field beyond the tents. I thought it was a whole Yankee army lined up waiting for us. Those in front were kneeling under the guns of the men in the second line, a great bank of blue uniforms, rifle barrels and white faces like rows of eggs, one above another. When they fired, smoke came at us in a solid wall. Things plucked at my clothes and twitched my hat. When I looked around and I saw men all over the ground in the same ugly positions as the men back on the slope, moaning and whimpering, clawing at the grass. I was what you might call unnerved. For they may warn you there's going to be bleeding in battle, but you don't believe it till you see the blood. What happened from then on was all mixed up in the smoke. We formed again and went back through the tents. But the same thing happened. They were, they were there just as before, and when they threw that wall of smoke and humming bullets at us, we came running back down the slope. Three times we went through and it was the same every time. Finally, a fresh brigade came up from reserve and we went through together. So this is a battle from the story, uh, sorry, this is a story from the Battle of Shiloh told by the Civil War historian Shelby Foote. The young private in, this, in the novel goes on to recount his confrontation with a big yank wearing his coat unbuttoned halfway showing a red flannel shirt underneath. This was definitely not planned. <laughs> he wonders what sort of man wears a red flannel undershirt. And this is in the middle of the chaos. He, um, and for in the, in the engagement in the story, um, this young private kills the big yank. His bayonet somehow finds its way under the chin of this large man. The private reflects on the closeness of the encounter a moment of experiencing the other and extinguishing the other at the very same instant. He had his eyebrows drawn in a straight line like a black bar over his eyes. He was full grown with a wide brown mustache. I could see the individual hairs on each side of the shaved line down the middle. I'd have to say sir to him back home. It's the sort of person I'd have to respect back home. Of the 425 men of the 6th Mississippi who engaged at Shiloh, only about 100 emerged alive. So rival theories about economic life seem to be predicated upon competing views of whether the salient fact about human cooperation with nature is abundance or scarcity. Surely in battle, the salient reality is scarcity. For any engagement with say 20,000 men in which say 12,000 will perish, there are exactly 8,000 shares of human life to be had at the end of it all. And so 20,000 will go at it fighting for their portion of a given pie of unknown size. 
Roughly 160,000 men engaged over three days in Gettysburg, 160,000, with 51,000 casualties, including the wounded, missing, and the captured. Initially, we might say, no one emerges from such a battle with more than his fair share, and many with much less, horribly less. But how quickly might it be said that he who emerges with four limbs has more than his fair share, if contrasted with him who has three? The scale of fairness shifts from an objective baseline to one of relative deprivation. He who is deprived of little lives like a prince in contrast with the double amputees and the blind, yet all who live at all emerge with an equal share of something infinitely and objectively valuable. Um, so you can look at quote number two, I'm not going to read it. There is something deep and nearly incomprehensible about this fact of the outcome of war. And if we are still ready, to divide numerators by denominators, let us ponder one more. 110,000 men engaged in the Battle of Shiloh with our young private, and 24,000 casualties were recorded. So 86,000 or 78% of the men won their fair share, emerging unscathed, slightly better odds than at Gettysburg, where only 68% got a piece of that pie. But it's not merely the scarcity of war that I wanted to highlight to begin. The engagement of a battle, we could sensibly say the battle, is a dynamic shifting whole composed of hundreds of thousands of freely chosen interactions, each purposeful but unguided in a fairly dramatic way. The balance of these transactions and exchanges, in a sense, determines the victor. Importantly, in the midst of the battle itself, it is usually not clear what is taking place. Until the end, each soldier presses on, retreats, thrusts, fires, crouches, runs, weeps, hollers, with no real sense of whether he is victor or loser. Virtue in battle, we understand, requires that he fight as if the entire battle depends upon him and may yet be won by his courageous action. It could already be lost, but he, he continues to fight. There's also the fact that there's a quasi-directedness within battle the captains attempt to channel the forces of action. Sixth Mississippi, form, charge. Our private tells us that three times they formed and charged, only to return to the tents. He describes a dynamic reciprocal exchange between form and unform. The unform, what happens when the soldiers sort of fall apart from their formation? It was the result of individual incentives lining up in the same direction. Retreat and plunder seems more appealing to every soldier than taking the slope. But the captains pressed with the flat of the sword against individual incentives, aiming to configure things so that a new set of incentives might govern the dynamic chaos. When the fresh brigade appears and with weariness setting in, the soldiers finally make the charge complete. Although it does end in defeat, the end of the battle for the living is anyway counted as an individual victory. We had aged a lifetime since the sun came up, the private says. Captain Plummer was calling us to rally, rally here, rally there, but there wasn't much rally left in us. There wasn't much left in me anyhow. The sun set that day on the men at Shiloh, but the horrors were repeated the next day. Wave upon wave of engagements, men entering and leaving, dead and wounded, fresh, and increasingly older arms for battle. The Civil War constituted a seemingly endless stream of battles characterized by three distinct dynamisms. First, that there is a war at all, that there is a place where men meet in a field to make a gamble for kind of reapers' shares. Never mind for now 
whether such a fact is desirable. I merely want to register how unusual it is in all of nature that there are fields and creeks and forests and valleys where animals on two feet hurl upon each other in massive engagements, after which pastures are irrigated with this unholy water. On the whole, the war is a canvas or a backdrop which need not exist, indeed normally does not exist. This dynamism, the coming in and out of existence, should not be neglected. Wars are not inevitable. The second dynamism is what we just considered, that furious directed and undirected, formed, unformed chaos of individual actions, each of which has some probability of rendering damage to the opponent, the sum of which constitutes an engagement or a, a unique battle. Each battle has its own dynamic, its own destruction, its own lessons. Each battle constitutes a part of the war, but has its own sort of life, its own logic. Each battle is as complex as the war itself in its own way, offering up an infinitude of human loss and experience. So the third quote, he says, we'd aged a lifetime since the sun come up. Joe Marsh was next to me. At first, I didn't know him. He didn't seem bad hurt, but he had a terrible look around the eyes. And there was a knot in his forehead the size of a walnut where some yank had bopped him with a rifle. I thought to ask him how the Tennessee breed of elephant compared with the Kentucky breed, but I didn't. He had lorded, over, lorded it over me for a month about being a greenhorn, yet here I was, just gone through meeting as big an elephant as any he had met, and he was still trying the same high and mightiness. He was mad now because he wasn't the only one who'd seen some battle. He'd had this big secret to throw up to us, but not anymore. We had all had it now. We might usefully borrow the language of irreducible complexity when we consider the single engagement, Irreducible because a single transaction between enemy soldiers cannot possibly perform the function of the battle at large. Complex because these transactions, each of them, are stuffed with specific human realities. This young Confederate private and the big Yank wearing red flannel. No other act of destruction in war will have just that character, just their character, where he says, I'd have to say sir to him at home. Finally, it is a poignant and sad fact that according to the records, exactly 52 battles, including major and minor engagements, preceded Shiloh. Also, Shiloh was also called Pittsburgh Landing. <clears throat> and this was fought over two days on April 6th and 7th in 1862. Shiloh predated Gettysburg by 15 months. And so 331 battles followed Shiloh. So all of that human experience, but it, it's a tiny, tiny, tiny drop of water in the bucket of this huge war. The third dynamism refers to this feature that irreducibly complex engagements are repeated, same but different, layered on top of each other, some spread out, some concentrated, but each taking the place on the canvas of the war, each influencing in some way every battle, which takes place contemporaneously after all, like chess moves. Shiloh was fought in Tennessee, and it took place at the same time as the siege of Yorktown a month-long in inconclusive engagement fought in Virginia. So to comprehend the war is to grasp all three of these types of dynamisms with some clarity. The motion or change involved in its coming into existence, the motion, these actions of, I might say, reduction in each engagement and the motion of repetition. We might try with some loss of accuracy to compare the war to a stream. It has a beginning where it leaves its mouth 
along the way, it can be characterized by cross sections, each of which is full of motion, rapid swirling eddies, downward flow, the movement from one cross section to the next. Note that the motion is a body of the motion of a body of water is called a current, a measure of movement in relation to time. The war at large, um, in the war at large, um, Heraclitus again seems relevant. So this is quote number four in front of you. To introduce the three dynamisms is to aim at incorporating time as a critical factor into the account of things. It may or may not be that we gain very much from this perspective at all when it comes to the Civil War, the reflection upon which I think is always edifying. But if I've done my work well, you will have anticipated my next move. Where I think we may gain, and in fact, where I think we must gain is through embracing the analogous but contrary relation between war and market. In fact, I've not been really speaking about war from the beginning, as you probably guessed, but rather about what is the negative mirror image of war, which is the market. In this, um, sorry, if the salient fact and dynamism of the former is scarcity, transacted with a kind of currency of depletion, the salient fact and dynamism of the latter is abundance transacted with the currency of enlargement. It follows that any serious account of economic justice must deal with these features of dynamism as replete with the tendency to enlarge as war is replete with reduction. Of course, there are rudimentary notions of economic justice which make no attempt at all to think about markets or economic life proper and which aim merely to divide numerators, invariably measures of product or output by denominators invariably numbers of souls. Calling for increasingly sophisticated measures of how much product is available in theory for distribution to each person. But I take it for granted that these efforts, which nonetheless occupy the attention of a small army of economists and econometricians, have nothing whatsoever to do with economic justice, or at least nothing more than an accounting of the dead bodies and severed limbs divided by the number of forces has to do with the justice of the war or even with the justice of a particular engagement. The move from transactions of war to transactions of exchange seems roughly accessible so long as we're willing to grant that the full measure of destruction in any act of war could not be ascertained by surveying the physical losses alone. So take for instance, the loss of limb so common in the civil war, the missing piece of flesh may be observed and counted but the true value of the loss of limb has profound magnitude, including at least physical, emotional, relational, and economic effects for the victim. These effects extend to family members. They are likely, in fact, to ripple through children and grandchildren. Children of World War II veterans, we know, um, Korean War vets, Vietnam War vets, Gulf War vets, know this all too well. Similarly, in economic exchange, we miss most of the action if we examine or count only the physical transaction itself, goods exchanged and services provided. Every exchange produces a seen and an unseen sum of value. Like the case of the lost limb, that which is unseen is subjectively tied to the person. To see this more carefully, um, ask you to turn to quote five. Um, this is from F.A. Hayek. An increase in value crucial in exchange and trade is indeed different from increases in quantity observable by our senses. Increase in value is something for which laws governing physical events, at least as understood, 
within materialistic and mechanistic models do not account. Value indicates the potential cap uh, capacities of an object to satisfy human needs and can be ascertained only by the mutual adjustment through exchange of the respective rates of substitution, which different goods and services have for individuals. And importantly, value is not an attribute of physical property possessed by things themselves, irrespective of their relations to men, but solely an aspect of these relations that enables men to take account in their decisions about the use of things. Increase in value appears only with and is relevant only with regard to human persons, purposes, persons with purposes. And in the same essay in quote six, um, Hayek says, in a certain sense, the activity that economics sets out to explain is not about physical phenomena, but about people. Economic values are interpretations of physical facts in the light of the degrees of suitability of kinds of physical objects in particular situations for the satisfaction of needs. So all of you, uh, those of you who spent more time reading economics will recognize that these ideas fall under the heading of the theory of subjective value. Not only does market exchange tend to increase value, but the estimation or accounting of that value cannot be approached through any mathematical sum. It is inestimable, not in the sense of having infinite value for sure, but in the sense of being unknowable. A corollary of this is that dollar amounts, which represent a fixed basket of goods or a multiple of a fixed basket of goods, we're very interested these days that the price of the fixed basket of goods is going up. Um, these dollar amounts do not have the same value to all members of an economy, as difficult as this is to believe. And you can peek at quote seven. Curiously enough, it would appear that the only things which have a fixed and objective value in the sense that we usually mean it are those things which are properly supernatural in character, such as grace, persons, ourselves and others, and eternal life. God. Material objects can be shown to have only subjective and therefore relative value. This seems to me an intriguing proof of the super reality of the supernatural, though it seems to us as embodied creatures that what is more real is what is more tangible. Um, but I'm reminded that Teresa of Avila used to say that um, many saints who, who prayed this way used to say that um, she, she used to say that she had the grace of seeing um, after being caught up in prayer, that she had the grace of seeing um, the tangible world as, as thin and um, like tissue, but the supernatural life was much more real. But most of us, we, we get it backwards. Um, the subjective theory of value at least points us in that same direction. Um, on this point, um, I, I, do, I do love this quote, number eight in front of you, um, that the hierarchy of ends the hierarchy of ends is relatively stable, um, reflecting what many may regard as their constant or lasting value. Whereas the hierarchy of means, right, which is material things, fluctuates so much, leads many idealistic persons to prize the former, um, the ends, and to disdain the latter. This is how he, he was trying to figure out why it was that idealistic people didn't like to think about economics very much. Um, to serve a constantly changing scale of values may indeed seem repulsive. Um, maybe the philosophy majors in here are, <laughs> are after the, uh, the true ends. Um, in any event, the tendency of economic exchange to increase value is consistently missed by the accountant's ledgers. It is not that physical growth cannot be observed. Indeed, it can. 
but that the physical record of enlargement is a shadow of the more real um, immaterial increase in value that takes place through free and voluntary exchange. In contrast with war as an engine of scarcity, markets are a kind of harvest of abundance. Okay, so I, since I was anyway, and perhaps maybe obviously talking about markets when I was speaking about war, there is no need to belabor these analogies to economic life. Um, but I want to offer one more literary frame of reference, which is quote number nine. And this one is from Oliver Twist, the iconic market morning scene, which in any case proves that I don't wish to romanticize markets, that markets tend to be an engine of abundance does not imply that they tend in every case to be beautiful. Miraculous, yes, um, aesthetically pleasing, uh, not always. <laughs> so this is this great quote, which you probably know. It was market morning, the ground was covered nearly ankle deep with filth and mire, a thick stream perpetually rising from the reeking bodies of the cattle, mingling with the fog, which seemed to rest upon the chimney tops. All the pens in the center of a large area and as many temporary pens as could be crowded into the vacant space filled with sheep tied up to posts by the gutter side were long lines of beasts and oxen three or four deep. Countrymen, butchers, drovers, hawkers, boys, thieves, idlers, vagabonds, and every vagabonds of every low grade mingled together in a mass. The whistling of drovers, the barking of dogs, the bellowing and plunging of oxen. I, I can only actually imagine what this sounds like. I've never been in such a market. Um, the bleeding of sheep, the grunting and squealing of pigs, the cries of hawkers, the shouts, oaths, quarreling on all sides, the ringing of bells, the roar of voices that issued from every public house, the crowding, pushing, driving, beating, whooping and yelling, the hideous and discordant din that resounded from every corner of the market, and the unwashed, unshaven, squalid and dirty figures constantly running to and fro and bursting in and out of the throng rendered it a stunning and bewildering scene, which quite confounded the senses. I'm struck in this description in particular um, by the sounds again, and I can't resist the comparison with that description um, in Shelby Foote's novel of the sounds of war. Um, in quote 10, um, we have that same private again saying, when I stopped moving, I begun to hear all sorts of things I hadn't heard while I was running. It was like being born again coming into a new world, there was a great crash and clatter of firing. And over all this, I could hear them all around me screaming and yelping like on a foxhound, except there was something crazy mixed up in it too, like horses trapped in a burning barn. I thought they all gone crazy. They looked it for a fact, their faces were split wide open with screaming, mouths twisted every which way and this wild lunatic yelping coming out. It's like they were yelling with their mouths. It was more like the yelling was something uh, pent up inside them and they were opening their mouths to let it out. That was the first time I really knew how scared I was. So it will not be lost in you that I've chosen two scenes from the 19th century. One fact of contemporary life is that many of the most important human events now um, are sanitized, kind of bleached of this kind of color in a sense. So money changing today is significantly less dramatic um, than in the ancient times. Uh, wars are no longer fought in such a manner as the one we call civil thought about that. <laughs> Though the logic of scarcity, I think, is no less accurate. And markets are typically less overwhelming um, than this description in, in Oliver Twist. Though these features um, remain, certainly, at least I'm told, in many parts of the world. The challenge for us is to see the billions of digital transactions, or, or perhaps to ask the question, the glittery malls, um, pleasant coffee shops, um, this 
trendy hotel where I'm staying today, um, as well as the auto repair shops and the junkyards and the business enterprises of other forms and functions as perhaps the great grandchildren of the London marketplaces described by Dickens. In these places today, certainly, um, all the places I just mentioned, vagabonds of every low grade are still mixed with those of nobler purpose. And if we could see and hear and smell every part of the market, we would certainly be stunned and as bewildered as Oliver Twist. Like the battles we imagined before, the marketplace is a dynamic, shifting whole composed of hundreds of freely chosen interactions, each one purposeful but unguided. And when we add to these images of the naked marketplace, also economic activity within a single enterprise, we may start to see the contours of that formed, unformed interaction of the battlefield. Form, a manager may call. Nevertheless, outcomes and value are in every case the result of compounded effects of uncountable numbers of richly layered human interactions. At home, I'd have called him sir. How many times in contemporary markets um, in economic life is that same courtesy, sir or ma'am, extended beyond the ordinary expectations of age and station? Um, I was raised to address anyone in a marketplace or a shop as sir or ma'am, and that seemed perfectly normal when I was 16 or 17, and increasingly, you know, people who are half or a third my age are sir or ma'am. And it doesn't strike me at all as, as um, but that's, that's enlarging, where war reduces markets augment. The three dynamisms of economic life then, I wanna say, correspond first to existence, the market at large, second to formed, unformed engagements, so specific markets of various size and quality, and third, to the waves of repeated overlapping interdependent markets which flow in time forward. So in quote 11, Hayek puts it this way, in order to explain the economic aspects of large social systems, we have to account for the course of a flowing stream, constantly adapting itself as a whole to changes in circumstances of which each participant can only know a small fraction. Critically, every instant in time is dependent upon contemporaneous actions and past decisions realized. And every instant is, in a sense, already past in the moment it has been lived. This pressing forward motion prompts Hayek to warn, in response, in fact, to John Stuart Mill's constructivist approach to the distribution of goods, Hayek says, and this is in quote 12, it is simply wrong to conclude that the things once there, we are free to do with them as we like for they will not be there unless individuals have generated price information. These remarks, I think, provide a tiny uh, entryway into the tougher question of economic justice, um, motivated as a concept, by a conception of economic life as a kind of dynamism in the way that I'm talking about it. We could begin to say that the first, uh, a first principle of economic justice is surely to preserve the integrity of the, the being of a market, that there are places with a view to these dynamisms. Importantly, the principle of preserving economic life um, does not arise from a theory of individual rights and not even from a priority of rules over outcomes, something like Hayek would have preferred, although each of these might be incorporated. Rather, this principle begins from the presupposition that the harvest of abundance is a great human good, a good um, like life itself a good upon which other goods depend. The principle is likewise augmented by the, fact, the facts of dynamism. If the market is not inevitable, 
just as wars are not inevitable. And if forward motion at any moment depends upon current and past decisions, it is some kind of priority then to protect the health and vitality of economic life. There's an analogous first principle, certainly for the state, in relation to war. It's surely a first duty of states to provide for the conditions of peace and to maintain a reasonable battery of defenses that, uh, such that war, if incurred, may be swift and minimal. This is not merely a political principle. The loss of capital in war, the induced scarcity, has a profound economic character, widely acknowledged. More serious still, fostering robust economic life is one of the primary means by which states may provide for the conditions of peace. It's certainly not uh, sufficient, but it's probably necessary. Um, these principles are not distinct. It is as much a matter of economic justice that markets exist and flourish as it is that war is avoided. The first principle then is concerned merely with this first idea of coming into existence. A second principle might follow from the following observation. If we're going to have a distributive theory of economic justice, and if Hayek is right that value only appears in relation to human purpose, then economic justice cannot be about the distribution of physical stuff. And not even about the distribution of dollar amounts, which represent multiples of baskets of goods. Rather, it must be about the distribution of value, which is a much more complicated and problem problematic. And it's probably ultimately intractable if we're honest about it. Distributing goods institutionally as a program of justice does little to equalize anybody. And the fact that free agents are free to make trades means that at the moment of equalization, in the very next moment, we will already have some new inequality. This cannot be helped. A principle might be articulated as follows, that men should be able to participate fully in the value-seeking value harvest of the market. Ordinarily, this means a twofold participation, including work and consumption and savings. But work is the primary of the pair since consumption and savings is a function of labor and not the reverse. Note that such a principle then includes something like Nozick's entitlement justice, as well as a kind of rules-based Hayekian social justice. But here we might wanna go further to embrace a richer con conception of enabling. The state is enjoined, for instance, to pursue the broader cultural and social conditions for participation in social and economic life. An assessment of sociological data, for instance, might argue in favor of family policies which limit divorce among parents with children since single parent homes are one of the greatest predictors of a lack of economic participation, perhaps also for expansion of support for private or religious schools and a reversal of policies which have increasingly transferred social services away from churches and into secular and efficient arm's length state offices. No policy could be pursued under the heading of equal treatment simpliciter, rather policies would be on these terms, justifiable with a view towards a process of maturation in the person for individuals, families, and communities, where maturation is taken to be full and meaningful participation in civil society. It goes without saying that many policies of this sort might limit individual freedoms in service of economic justice. And this is, of course, a very different conception from either libertarian or purely liberal notions. This principle hangs on the notion, in a sense, of subjective value embedded in freedom as both the cause and the consequence of the individual engagements known as specific markets. This reality is what the second dynamism is meant to capture, 
that and what the second principle seeks to protect. Every policy aimed at equality of outcome and even of equal opportunity is necessarily self-defeating. Water flows downhill. The distribution and increase of value through free exchange needs little help if participatory conditions are established, deepened, and protected. A final thought or final principle might be devised with respect to the third dynamism. Consider the following, quote 13, critique of Marx found in the epilogue to Hayek's Law, Legislation, and Liberty. What prevented Marx, he says, from appreciating the signal function of prices through which people are informed what they ought to do was of course his labor theory of value. His vain search for a physical cause of value made him regard prices as determined by labor cost, that is what people had done in the past, rather than as the signal telling them what they must do in order to be able to sell in the future. From this, we might note that Marxian economic justice, based in a strict conception of desserts as applied to human labor already undertaken, is, for lack of a better description, backward looking. The difficulty that Hayek wants to point out is that if prices must be always fixed to satisfy costs already borne, then some goods may go unsold, kind of leads to waste, and ultimately unproduced leads to scarcity in the next period. Instead, a market-based conception of prices which reflect current and future expectations of scarcity and of usefulness will orient the market to transactions going through where possible and tend to minimize waste and scarcity in future time periods. So we might say that the third dynamism, which emphasizes repeated market engagements, suggests the difficulty of coming up with a forward-looking conception of justice. Um, and this almost seems crazy and impossible, so you know, we welcome the discussion. Um, almost miraculously, I would say, from an economic perspective, forward-looking rules of order end up ensuring something like a general environment of backward-looking or desserts-based justice in respect of labor, for instance. And yet they're not the same thing at all in principle, not at all. So a formulation of a principle might start with something like this. Economic justice favors mechanisms which ensure for full, uh, sorry, future market engagements or forward play of the game, you might say. And those which facilitate swift adjustments in relative prices based on local knowledge such an approach cannot eliminate all losses, but will tend to a minimum of disruption to economic life, right? So what I'm saying is, is very difficult to, it may, it may not work, <laughs> but we think exclusively about justice as giving to, to, to each what is due to them. But what is due has to be typically assessed on the basis of what's in the past. Um, it's very difficult to figure what's due in the future. Now it's not impossible. There are definitely things that are due to my husband in the future on account of my commitment to him, right? But this is not typically how we assess economic justice, at least. So this is, a, I'm basically raising a, a sticky point. It's very difficult to figure out how to, how to make it work out. This might be something we could talk about. Um, so where does this leave us? I have largely in a schematic way attempted to dispose of equality, distribution of goods, and desserts-based conceptions of economic justice in the consideration of the dynamic whole of the market. I would, I would not want to deny, of course, that legal justice, which adjudicates conflicting claims of right or property, will typically be desserts-based and is very much bound up with the broader notion of economic justice captured in the first principle. But I do insist that we have had better lawyers in their own right and perhaps philosophers of law 
in their own right than philosophers of economics. And as such, we must not abandon the project of aspiring to a more holistic conception of economic justice that we know intuitively must have some sense of meaning. 